Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd, that is, Jesus. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored it to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, we come to a triune God, one who has existed in eternity, in perfection, perfect fellowship, perfect love, and you have revealed that in the face of Jesus Christ. God, this morning we come to look into the face of Jesus Christ in your word, to see and know the God who chose to redeem us of his own accord, God, may we glorify you. May you change us and transform us by your word. Bless us in the hearing of it today. In Jesus Christ's precious name, we pray. Amen. Uh, My favorite professor in college was uh, Professor Clampett. It's an unforgettable name, Professor Clampett. He would teach us the importance of recognizing people's communication tendencies. If you pay attention to how someone communicates, you could often pick up on how they think, what they want, or how you can both understand their message and be able to communicate with them in an effective way. He would also say that one of the most important things someone can say to you, it will begin with an I am, an I am statement. Things like, I am hungry, I am happy. I am tired, I am late, I am angry, I am sad. These cues are self-revelation about what this person is in in this very moment. And it should change likely how you communicate with them, especially with someone who's angry versus happy. Or other statements like, I am a dad, a wife, a grandma, a son. Tell us how you relate to the world and those around you. I am stupid. I am smart, I am ugly, I am beautiful, I am worthless, I am loved. The great I am statements tell us something about how someone views themselves. They reveal, if you will, who a person thinks they are in that moment and who they believe you need to know they are, or what you need to know, rather, about them in that moment. Such statements are self-revelation. These things are low-hanging fruit that we must pick, that we must pay attention to. So for you today, who are you? What I am statement 
would come out of your mouth this morning. I am a Christian. I am a skeptic. I am part of a family that makes me go to church. I am what? I am hungry because I did not eat before I came this morning. I am tired because I didn't get enough sleep. I am sad because I lost the fight in the car on the way here this morning. I am in distress because my best efforts in school, in work, in my marriage all seem to fall flat. I am what this morning? Now, these may be uh, interesting questions to ask one another after the service. Who are you today? And lean in and listen close because that is what we are to do. When someone begins with, I am, we should lean in, listen closer, because someone is about to reveal themselves to you. And it is an invitation that you would come and know them better. In contrast to this, one of the most insulting things we can do is to ignore someone's I am statements, to simply not care, only be concerned with our selves. Frankly, we do this all the time. We are such people pleasers at times as well. And uh, even if we don't care, we will feign interest, act like we're interested, although our hearts or our minds may, may be hard and maybe elsewhere. We may be unrecognizing or uncaring about what a person is revealing about themselves. And honestly, many are doing this to us as well. But in truth, we do this to none more than to God. We do this none, than, none more than to God. See, when God reveals himself, our posture is often, so what does this have to do with me? Throughout the book of John, Jesus often has these I am statements. I am the bread of life, the uh, what? The gate, I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth in the life. And we might feign interest, but deep down we may also think, what does this have to do with me right this second? What difference should this make in my life? Frankly, I am sick. I am suffering. I am single. I am lonely. I am miserable in marriage. I am weak, aimless, and tired of loss. Jesus, what does your revelation, self-revelation, have to do with me right now? Well, today in this text, Jesus says to you simply, I am. That's it. I am. And if you will not harden your heart, but instead lean in and listen closely, this will answer your distress. This will answer that question of what it has to do with you right now. Because Jesus is, I am. In this text, Jesus reveals the God that you need right now, today. So that means that we must recognize him and believe in him. Now, we'll see this through this text uh, in answering three questions. You'll see those in your bulletin. But we'll, we'll move through the text through those three questions. The first one, whom, I believe it should be a whom, whom does Jesus go to in distress? Well, look back with me at verses 45 through 47. Remember, Jesus has just finished feeding the 5,000. And verse 45 doesn't even let us catch our breath. It says, immediately, Jesus made them get into the boat to go to the other side. There's urgency in Jesus's actions. See, the word for made here actually means to compel, to force. This is activeness on Jesus's part to force the disciples to leave. Why? Especially because it's nearing dark. Why would he do this? 
Well, last week we established that that great crowd likely had intentions of making Jesus, or at least wanting, and perhaps making Jesus their king. This is what John 6 confirmed in us, that, or confirmed for us, rather, that they wanted to make Jesus king and force him to, at that. And it may be that the disciples were at risk of joining into the rabble, of getting into the excitement and pushing Jesus as well towards that. And maybe that even Jesus would feel an increased temptation at this point to be made king sooner than he ought. Now that makes us uncomfortable, but Mark never shies away from Jesus's humanity. And Hebrews tells us that even Jesus is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So whatever the potential distress, fatigue, or temptation may be for Jesus in this moment, whatever it is that's urgently forcing him to send away the disciples, he is feeling something. (laughs) And what he does in sending them away and dismissing the crowds, he goes up the mountain. He goes up the mountain to pray. Throughout Mark, there's three times that Jesus is recording us retreating in prayer. And it's often when the disciples don't understand his mission or when Jesus is tired from the ministry or when he's distressed about what he has to do. That's in Mark 14 when he's the Garden of Gethsemane, right? When he's distressed about what's to come and heading to the cross. But the fact that Mark tells us that Jesus does this multiple times throughout the book, this is simply showing us this is Jesus' common practice. This is what Jesus normally does. He retreats away in prayer. Notice how long this time is as well. The disciples leave just before sundown and Jesus does not go to them until the fourth watch of the night. That's about 3 a.m. Jesus has spent several hours just being desperate to be in prayer with the Father by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this is such a sweet picture that we must not take lightly. Jesus, the Son of God, retreats away to do what Jesus was doing before the foundations of the earth dwelling in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. This is what Jesus does here, perfectly loving the Father and the Spirit and they loving him. In your own life, can you remember a time when you looked up to someone and compared yourself to them? I remember playing sports in high school and being an underclassman and looking up at the upperclassmen, right? If they took a break, I took a break. If they skipped water, I don't need water, right? Maybe you too, there's a student, there's our fellow student or classmate, perhaps there's a coworker or maybe another fruitful parent that you look to and you say, if they can do that, I should do that. I should model myself after them. And perhaps you see where I'm going. Jesus is a positive model here. But I want to be careful before pressing this point. Because large swaths of people who say that they look to Jesus believe that Jesus chiefly came just to show us a model of how to live. This is the very heart and center of the what would Jesus do movement. Thinking that that's why Jesus came. Jesus chiefly did not come as a model of how we are to live. If you seek to live like Jesus, that's not a bad thing. But chiefly, Jesus came to do what? to live the righteous life you cannot, to die for your sin, to rise again. Jesus came with that purpose, not chiefly as a model. We can't divorce Jesus from that primary purpose. And so with that qualification made, we then should be able to see the grace of God here in Jesus's actions, right? Jesus is is better than an upperclassman, better than a coworker, better than another fruitful parent, right? Jesus, who is the, note this, sinless son of God, 
who yet feels the weight of temptation and fatigue just as you do, what does he think he needs more than anything else in potential distress? It's to be with his father. It's to retreat away in solitude, to have fellowship with God. It's true, you may need sleep. Actually, most of us probably need more sleep. You may need food. But, real, but realize that Jesus is revealing for you the God you need. And he does so by modeling it of going to God the Father himself. So this week, pay attention. When the moments of temptation, of fatigue, of distress come, or when you're in a season of that, to whom or to what do you go to? To whom or to what do you go to? Perhaps for you, if you do not know how to set aside time for solitude and prayer and reading God's word, please ask someone today. We have been spending several weeks in talking about worship. In the last few, we've been literally practicing personal worship. You can elbow a person next to you gently and say, do you know how to do this? Because we've been practicing it here. Please ask before you leave. And so the the question again, to whom does Jesus go to in distress? It's to his father. Jesus reveals the God you need. And this means that you must recognize and believe in this God who is available to you, that you can retreat to be with. Well, in verses 48 through 52, this being our, I will say, our longest and likely our most rich uh, in content uh, point today, so you'll want to buckle up a bit here, we find the disciples in trouble on the sea. This is similar to Mark 4, right? They were trouble in trouble on the sea in Mark 4, and there was water pouring in over the boat back in Mark 4, and they were at, uh, being threatened of drowning. Well, here, there isn't quite a threat of them dying. Death isn't quite the, the primary thing here. Instead, they're being tormented by a strong wind. Their will, their morale is broken. And in their distress, who do the disciples cry out to? Or rather, what do the disciples cry out for? That second question. Well, a normal trip across the Sea of Galilee would have lasted six to eight hours, just a quick six to eight. But in verse 48, uh, it says that they were making headway painfully. Now, the Greek word for painfully here is the same word used for describing being tortured or being tormented. It's actually the same word that's used to describe contractions in childbirth, mothers. (laughs) It's actually the same word that's even used to describe some of the pains of hell. That's what the disciples are facing as they are going across the sea. And Jesus saw them. He came to them walking on the sea and he meant to pass by them? Well, verse 49, they saw Jesus, thought he was a ghost, and they cried out. Literally, the word is, they screamed. They shrieked, and they were terrified. But Jesus immediately, urgency, immediately spoke. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. He got into the boat, and the wind ceased. So why did Jesus mean to pass by? This sounds strange at best or cruel or unkind at worst. Is Jesus potentially ignoring their I am statements? I am scared. I am tired. I am weary. And Jesus says, I'm passing right on by. No, that's not what's happening here. You see, uh, if we are to lean in a bit closer, we will see that there's something more profound happening. What I want us to do to, to be able to unpack this, I want you to go back to Job 9. 
Look at our Old Testament passage together. So flip back. Go to Job 9. See, the story of Job is he's a man who is tormented, right? He has lost everything, home, wealth, family, health. And in Job 8, his good friend Bildad, what a name, Bildad told him, essentially, just repent, Job, right? God doesn't punish the blameless. So clearly, Job, you're in sin. Just repent and God will relent. And we get Job's response in Job 9. In essence, Job is saying, yes, you're right about how good God is and that no one can answer him, right? Verse four, who can harden themselves against God and succeed? No one. And then Job explains in verses five through 10 that this is because this God is the one who removes mountains. He shakes the earth. He commands the sun. He stretches the heavens and he makes the starry constellations. And look closely at verse eight. Who is this God? He's one who tramples the waves of the sea. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word for trample here is peripateo. It's the same exact word and shape of this sentence that we find in Mark 6. Job says, who can walk on the waves alone? Only God. Mark 6 says, who is walking on the waves? Here he is, God in the flesh. But Job's complaint, hear it in verse 11 Behold, he, that is God, he passes by me. And I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. See, Job's issue is that he has no audience with God. God passes by him and he perceives him not. He does not see God. And Job continues in Job 9 saying, uh, we don't have these verses in the, in, the, in the bulletin, but he goes on to say that in essence, he believes that he is blameless But he is sure that if he had an audience with God, God would show that he is not right in his complaint. And in verse 32, Job says, what there? God is not a man as I am, that I might answer him. And in verse 33, Job wishes for an arbiter. He wishes for someone who would be able to stand between he and God to hear and settle the dispute, to handle Job's distress. We focus in on Job 9 because Mark, in this precise language, is recalling Job 9, right? Tramples on the water, right? Only God can do this. Or even with God passing by Job without revealing himself. And even Job's desire that there would be a go-between, one who is like a man who could be between he and God. Mark is showing, here he is. This is Jesus, Jesus is the answer to Job's complaints. Jesus is God in the flesh, walking on the waters. And in Jesus passing by, they perceive it. Why? Because he's there in the flesh as a man. This is chiefly an answer to Job's request. Mark is using that language specifically. But this language of pass by is not just in Job. We find it in Exodus as well. uh, Moses in Exodus 33 begs God, let me see your glory. And God in Exodus 34 does what? Passes by before him. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah is on Mount Horeb and God does what? He passed by him as part of an exchange that ends up revealing God to Elijah. Mark is using the language of pass by not to confuse you, but he wants you to see that God passing by is not God hiding, but is God revealing 
himself, as he did to his people in the Old Testament, as Job wanted God to, but thought that he, he wouldn't. But unlike Job, what are the disciples crying out for? Nothing. Nobody. We hear nothing off the lips of the disciples until they shriek in terror at seeing a potential ghost. Jesus in verse 50 means to show them, though, the God that they need. See, throughout the Old Testament, God often comforted his people by telling them to often do two things that were related. One, take heart, be courageous, right? And two, don't be afraid. And he could say these things because he'd say, I am with you. Isn't that what Jesus is saying here? I am with you. Be courageous, right? Don't fear. But there's more than that here. In Exodus 3, God commissioned Moses out of a burning bush, you may remember, to free the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. And Moses asked God, well, who should I say is sending me to you? And God says, I am who I am. Tell the Israelites, I am is sending me to you. In the Hebrew, I am is Yahweh. That's where we get that name, Yahweh, that the Israelites called the Lord throughout the Old Testament. But in the Greek version, the Septuagint of this very text, how is I am translated? It is ego eimi, ego eimi. Why that's important is when we come to this very text, what is written here in verse 50? When Jesus says, take heart, it is I. In the Greek, it says, take heart, ego eimi. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. Jesus is declaring, I am. I'm God in the flesh. How profound. But verse 51 says the disciples are utterly astounded. Also could be translated utterly bewildered. They're confused. They don't understand what's happening. And Mark tells us this in verse 52. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. See, the disciples failed to understand that Jesus, when he multiplied the loaves and the fish, that that revealed who God was, that it was Jesus there before them. And here on the moment, they don't, or here on the sea, they don't understand either. But it says their hearts are hardened. See, a hard heart, most often in the Bible, will mean someone who will not trust in God, potentially ever. And Mark is using this unsettling word and picture and reality to show us that even Jesus' disciples, the ones who were empowered by the Holy Spirit, who went and did miracles and taught, even they could have hard hearts. So what about you today? What about your heart? Jesus declares here, I am. I'm God in the flesh. And he calls you to recognize and believe in him. So who are you this morning? Perhaps you think I am more like Job. My life feels like torment. Is there a sin, God, that I am being punished for? Are you passing by me, God, and I don't know you're there? God, if you would only, if you are there, if you would only put someone between me and you, someone who could represent me before you, who could shield me from what I think is your tormenting of me. Hebrews 9 answers this. It says that Jesus reveals the God you need because Jesus, in fact, is the God you need. Jesus reveals the God you need. How? Because he is the God you need. 
In Hebrews 9, it mentions how Jesus died for your sin, rose again, went to heaven, and appears before God the Father, listen in, on your behalf. Jesus is not just an arbiter in heaven before the Father on your behalf. He is your advocate, 1 John 2 says. He pleads your case. They are forgiven on account of my sacrifice. If this morning you feel more like a Job, Jesus is who you need because he is the God that has come for you. Harden not your heart. Cry out in faith to him. Well, who are you this morning? Perhaps you should think, you should think, I am more like the disciples. For those who call themselves Christians, who have heard the word preach, have maybe seen and felt the very power and spirit of God in your life at some point, is your heart hard towards God? In the distress of your life, do you only cry out in complaint, but not to God? Do you fail to recognize who Jesus is and believe upon him in those moments? Disciples of Jesus are those who call themselves that. The greatest threat to you is not torment. It's not rejection. It's not even dying. The greatest threat to you is a hard heart. For you who see yourself as a Christian or as near to Christ, pray that you truly are one, that your heart would not be hardened to God. As even the disciples, it says their hearts are hardened here. Pray to recognize who Jesus is and believe on him, not only when it's convenient, right? Not only when it's non-threatening or beneficial to you, but pray to see Jesus during the torment, to cry out not to nobody or nothing, but to God, to Jesus. Because his comforting voice will come and say, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. He will climb into the boat with you and the winds die down. So will your heart be hardened in unbelief or will it be softened in faith? This morning, ask God to rid you of a hard heart and to be able to recognize who Jesus is, the one who tramples the waves. I am who comes in the flesh. Well, in our last few verses, in verses 53 to 56, Jesus and the disciples, likely on account of the the strong winds that push them southward, they don't end up in Bethsaida. Instead, they moor in at Gennesaret. It's It's a densely populated region that they come to. And verse 54 says the people immediately recognized them. And they run about the country collecting all their sick loved ones. So where do the people run to in their distress? That's our question for this last point. Did you notice this here? What does Mark not call these people? He doesn't call them crowds. And all through Mark, the crowds, as we can remember, I've said many times, the crowds are there to hinder. Mark doesn't call these people crowds. Jesus didn't come to be used by the crowds for their own ends, but Mark differentiates these people from the crowds who've gone before. And actually, he even differentiates the people from the disciples just a moment ago. Why or how? Well, the disciples with their front row seat to Jesus's identity, they don't recognize Jesus. They have hard hearts. But verse 54, these people, Mark's trying to signal it, immediately recognize who they are. In verse 55, they run to get their sick loved ones and bring them where? 
to wherever they heard Jesus was. Mark shows that these people recognize Jesus and believe in him. And there's two other positive things we should note here. Verse 55, look how Mark describes them. He recalls in his language here, he's recalling Mark 2. Remember those few friends who went and they got their friend on his bed, the paralyzed friend? And in their faith, they bring him to Jesus, rip open the roof and lower him down. These people are going and getting their friends on their beds and bringing them before Jesus. Such an act of faith. Mark's description of the people in verse 56 and 57, it recalls Mark 5 just a moment ago. Remember the bleeding woman who in faith came to Jesus thinking, if I only touch his garments, I will be made well. And she was. Everywhere that Jesus went, Mark makes sure to tell us that he preaches and he teaches. Not here. Quite strange. It's not that Jesus likely isn't teaching. I believe he is. But I think Mark is making home or pressing home this point that these people, albeit likely not a perfect faith, they have believed in who Jesus is. They are no crowd looking to use him. So what do these people receive for their faith? Verse 57 says, as many touched it, his garments were made well. The word made well is actually the same word for saved. Now, I'm not saying that, again, that they all believe perfectly, that they're all eternally saved, but see what Mark is doing here. Mark has clearly contrasted the disciples with hard hearts who don't recognize with these people's tender, recognizing, and faith-filled actions. This is shown in where the people in distress run where? To wherever Jesus is. To wherever Jesus is. Well, the 20th century uh, psychologist, Gordon Allport, he, he says that the central theme of our existence is to understand one thing. He says we need to understand that to live is to suffer and to survive is to find meaning in our suffering. In other words, to live is to accept inevitable loss, heartbreak of some sort, to face unexplained pain and difficulty. And the way to survive that is to find or create some meaning in the face of it. Is he right? I think we live like he is. Every time we are in distress, heartache, pain, or loss, don't we start to throw out our hypotheses? Oh, God must be doing this to me, right? He wants me to learn this lesson. Yup. That's the reason why that suffering happened, so that I could learn that one single lesson. And when we can't discern a tangible reason for our distress, what happens? We we grow bitter, hard-hearted, resentful, and most often towards God. But for the record, Gordon Allport, the secular thinking man, is wrong. What we need is not to be able to create meaning out of every moment of distress in order to survive But rather, like these people do, we need to run to wherever Jesus is. He's here among the saints. He's here, or he's there in the word. He's here in the sacrament. We need to run to wherever Jesus is. We do not need to decode every single distress. We need only recognize and believe in Jesus and run to him. In time, even the disciples' hard hearts will be softened in faith. It would do us well this morning to remember that Mark is likely writing the disciple Peter's account. Right? So who's writing about this shameful behavior of the disciples? The disciples. The disciples 
are not hiding their hard-heartedness. Rather, they are examples to you and I so that we would not grow hard-hearted towards this very obvious God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. The disciples shame themselves by showing even an anonymous people, they're, not, they're unnamed, an anonymous people who show faith like those who have had faith before in Mark. If today you are, you are unbelieving in Jesus, you are content in your hard heart, hear the patient, gracious, and yet powerful call of Jesus Christ who says, I am. Take heart, I am. Recognize and believe in him and like these peoples, run to Jesus, but don't come empty-handed. What's in their hands as they come? They drag their families and friends to Jesus. Come not alone. Bring those with that they too might touch Jesus by faith and be made well, be saved. To close, uh, throughout church history, art has been such an essential piece to communicating the Christian faith. Of course, in part, this is due to an inaccessibility of uh, the scriptures uh, and perhaps uh, also illiteracy. But a favorite image in the ancient church was that of Jesus' disciples in a small boat amid a raging storm or crazy wind throwing them about on the waves. So popular is this imagery and the symbol to the church that as church buildings and as cathedrals are built, the main area, what we might call the sanctuary here, the main area that the people would meet for worship, it was called the nave. Nave is a Latin word meaning ship. The ancient church saw itself as the collective of Jesus' people in a storm-tossed, wind-blown ship of life. The prayer of every church when we gather is, as we do today, is to say, Jesus, come trample the waves that terrify us. Come trample the waves that threaten to kill us. Come trample our hard hearts. Get into the boat and be with us that we might be courageous, unafraid, and better than all other things, made well, saved in your care. Jesus reveals the God you need, the one who walks on water, the one who is not an arbiter, but is an advocate for you. He bears the terrible curse for your sin, the one who became man that he might speak to us and get in the boat with us. Trust in him, believe in him, and today do not harden your hearts, but instead recognize Jesus as the God you need.